This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. The real thing is just perseverance. It sounds very glamorous and the road to being a submersible pilot, or I think to follow any passion, to be honest with you. Once, once you get there and people dress you down and trying to understand how you got there, oh, wow, you're so lucky to have that job, but there's so many gaps that you've got to fill in between people telling you, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be thinking about buying a house and how are you ever going to have a stable relationship when you're off on a ship all the time and what are you doing about university degree? When are you going to come home, miss this wedding and this birthday and that Christmas and all these major events? So I think that... uh, just committing. And I think the, the only way you can really do that is just find something that you actually enjoy to do. Something you really, really love. I think I was very, very fortunate that I found something that I really enjoyed and was able to make a career out of it very early on. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. In between trekking the Namibian desert, hiking in Wyoming, exploring Svalbard in the far north, and working on private yachts throughout the world as a diver and engineer, Tim McDonald also earned a degree in offshore engineering from the Australian Maritime Academy in Tasmania. Tim's a small-town Aussie boy who's built himself a life of adventure and exploration and who recently became the first Aussie to dive to the deepest point in the sea, the Challenger Deep in the Marianas Trench. Tim's enduring goal is to help marine scientists develop the tools to achieve their research objectives and expand the realm of the possible. Expanding the realm of the possible is certainly what he did as a member of the Triton Submersibles team that built the world's first truly reusable and reliable full ocean depth submersible, Victor Vescovo's limiting factor, which Tim now pilots frequently to the deepest places in the ocean. I should note before we start that Tim was talking to me on a bit of a shaky circuit from down under in Australia, so you'll hear a bit of an echo on his end much of the time. The audio is just not quite up to our usual standard. I thank you for your understanding. Tim McDonald, it's delightful to see you. We last, our last chat and a little bit of a friendly hug was out on the deck of the pressure drop vessel in Guam as I left the ship two years ago. How have you been? 
I've been very well, Kathy. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to be here. Still been floating around on the good ship pressure drop since I left you for quite a while, but uh, find myself here in sunny Perth at the moment. The pandemic certainly didn't have its usual confining effect on you. You've been quite the globetrotter these past couple of years. I was confined somewhat. I was just confined to a, a moving space on the ship. <laughs> True. <laughs> it's just lucky that my confines travelled around the world to exotic locations. Your own little portable bubble. That's way to go. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, COVID wasn't all so bad for me. Oh, that's excellent. Tim, you and I chatted a bit when we were out at sea a couple of years ago about the different pathways that bring people through their life waypoints to, you know, a ship in our case in the little far nowhere of the Pacific. But I'd love to start our conversation going, <laughs> diving, if you'll excuse the pun, a little deeper into that with you. And Tell us more about your upbringing. You were born in a pretty tiny little place in New South Wales, Australia, if I have that right. You do indeed, yeah. A little town called Shoal Bay, about three hours north of Sydney. And it's just a little seaside village, started out as a, as a fishing village. It's now a bit of a, a tourist hub. So over the summer, our population quadruples. People from all over New South Wales figure it's a nice spot to holiday, and we were lucky enough to live there. And during my childhood there there's a lot of good diving and a lot of like I said a lot of tourist activity and I had a was lucky enough when I was 14 years old to score a job at the local dive shop filling scuba tanks and washing dive gear pay for all my uh all my dive courses tell me a bit more about your family how many siblings you have and how were your parents making a living in beautiful downtown Shoal Bay and Fill in some of that color commentary of the very young Tim McDonald and what was propelling him and exciting him. And I've got a uh, lovely mum and dad. Dad is a coal miner, as with every other male in my family at the time. Uh, my mum is a nurse, and I have two older sisters who love me very dearly, even though they didn't always show it. <laughs> they, they never do. <laughs> But uh, we had a very, a very close family growing up. We we're always away every weekend, off camping and diving and surfing and hiking and caving and doing everything you could imagine. And I don't think it was a coincidence that I was never introduced to summer sports. because mom and dad didn't want to be tied down on the on the school holidays and over summer weekends. All right, stand around on a cricket pitch <laughs> for six <laughs> hours. <gasps> So we spent a lot of our childhood up and down the coast and inland. Dad had a, a little five-meter trailer boat, and we used to tow that up to the Whit Sundays. Mum and Dad would pull us out of school because they didn't want to go camping when it was busy. So we'd go up, take two days to drive up to northern Queensland and go camp on the Whit Sunday Islands for ten days at a time, and we'd spend our our holidays just as a, a little tiny family on a remote island, diving and fishing. Wow. Did all those experiences set some bit in your head that said, I want to be a something or other, or I like this approach to a life, that's what I want mine to be like? Any kind of early sense of direction that mattered to you? Um, I wouldn't say I had a profound idea of exactly what I wanted to be doing when I grew up. It just, I just did things that made sense. I liked diving, so I'd go diving and I found a job in a dive shop. I liked surfing. So I, I've always chosen studies and, and work that 
that makes sense so I could surf. Um, and it wasn't till I was in my early 20s that I actually kind of realized, oh, wow, I, can, I could actually make a career out of this. You know, I could find a job that I, that I really love that will take me to these really unique places. I'll get to do something interesting. I'll get to progress in my career. I guess I always had a, an understanding that I would probably follow in my dad's footsteps and become an engineer. I think that looking back on my life that he sort of groomed me to be an engineer. I used to always get really frustrated by I would come back with my, my bike tire flat and I'll be like, and I'd ask my dad to help me fix it. And he'd be like, no, we need to figure out why this happened and you need to understand what's going on here. I'm like, I don't want to understand. I just <laughs> just fix it. <laughs> it's gonna be a five-minute job. You know, it was never it was never the easy road. It was always had to understand everything. Um, so I think looking back on that, that's definitely I, I realized it wasn't a, a normal approach that everyone got given by their by their father. So I wouldn't necessarily say that engineering was a so much of a choice, but it just an evolution of my of my upbringing. And it was a really, really nice feeling when I actually started to realize how much I, I enjoyed it. And I wasn't, just, I wasn't just good at it. It was that I actually really enjoyed it. And then um, when I finished high school, I worked at the dive shop full-time and I went and did my small boat skippers. And I think that was really sort of the turning point when I was about 19 years old. And I realized that there was a whole profession out there in the marine world where I could combine engineering and practical approach and being on the water or near the water. Um, and that inspired my move to go down to Tasmania and study at the Australian Maritime College. Yeah, I was curious about what took you to TAS. Does the University of Tasmania really stand out in that program? I mean, every university I know of anyway in Australia is near the coast, on the coast, and you might have thought every one of them would have some marine or offshore part of their engineering departments, but is that not so? There is definitely some universities that do offer some maritime degrees. The University of New South Wales, um, some universities over here in Western Australia, but uh, the University of Tasmania, which previously was separated, used to be this, there was a, a university down there called the Australian Maritime College, which is still called the Australian Maritime College, but it's been integrated with UTAS. And uh, all they do is maritime, maritime logistics, marine fisheries, marine ecology, marine engineering, marine biology, naval architecture, ocean engineering. Wow. The whole faculty is built for the marine facility. And I think the biggest, the big difference there was, was were, actually was probably multiple things, but two major ones is that they have a lot of facilities. So they actually have a big research center there. Um, so they have towing tanks and model test basins and wave pools and cavitation tunnels, which is like a, like a wind tunnel. Oh, that was the first part is that it really integrated you into industry and, and a lot of research and you got to play with a lot of really cool expensive toys, which are normally tens of thousands of dollars a day to get to experience. And the other, the other part of it was that there was in a small town called Launceston and, you know, there's only a handful of students that actually came locally from Launceston and the rest were in a the state. They're all from Queensland, New South Wales, all from thousands of kilometres away. You have to catch a ferry or a flight. It's on this tiny little island, island at the bottom of Australia. 
And it just made for this really great little community of, of students. Everyone had to move away from home. No one had any friends. So straight away, I almost kin it to the life on a ship. You become really good friends yeah. with people very quickly because you're thrust into this really awkward, uncomfortable environment. I mean, moving town is not that awkward and uncomfortable, but being 19 years old is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like everyone in the same little Petri dish. And I've been to Hobart once. That's the capital of, of Tasmania a long time ago now, 15 years anyway. But, you know, it's not a giant place. So I would imagine there was also not a lot of the conventional kind of nightlife-ish attractions that might distract oh, yes, 19-year-olds and send you each off doing different things. You probably also socialized, you made your own fun in a sense. I would think. Yeah, it's definitely a small country town, so definitely inspired you. And, I mean, Tasmania is so beautiful. The lack of nightlife and the beauty in Tasmania definitely inspired us and we would – it was a continuation of my childhood. Every weekend we're out camping and going down the coast surfing and climbing mountains and rock climbing and absolutely stunning, stunning place. Yeah. We probably have some college that's like that in the United States, but as you describe it – what it's closest to making me think of is a similar, really multifaceted program around aviation at Embry-Riddle Aerospace University now. But you know, if you want to be running the front desk where people check out airplanes, or you want to be the mechanic or the pilot or kind of anything, aviation weather forecaster, they've kind of brought all that together into one program. Yeah, and it was great. And as I took a unconventional approach to university. Uh, mainly to do with opportunities rather than a direct approach that I that I sought out was that it actually took me eight years to finish my four-year degree. And that was ah. because I just got some really good opportunities and I got an opportunity to go on a research ship and they were like, cool, but you need to come for a minimum of a year. So I left university behind and uh, went off and did that for a year. And that just kind of started a seemingly never-ending cycle of going back and studying for a little bit and then going away and working and then coming back and studying and then going away and working. So how did those come about? I mean, do they just show up on the bulletin board in the hallways of the college? I mean, I mean, you're 19 years old. You can't have had some super high-powered network of people that were that you could be pinging. It all came through diving. Oh. My f- the first summer I went to New Zealand, worked there as a dive instructor, and I met some people there who were working on private super yachts, made some connections with them, sort of got this seed planted in my head. So the following year, I went and to the- I flew myself to the Caribbean and actually with my sister, I'm talking about older sisters. My older sister was also by that stage in super yachting, so she came and held my hand and helped me get a job, and she was getting job offers for working on boats, you know, a couple of days here or there. And she said she would tell them that she would only take the job if she could bring a little brother with her. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, go for big sisters. So uh, you you went quickly past the word super yacht, working on super yacht. And I mean, there's some reality TV show that goes into bits of that, but you know, it's jacking up all the exotic fake drama parts of that. What, What are those jobs? I mean, what kind of jobs were you doing? I got the job because I was a dive instructor. The first job I got was for because I was a dive instructor. Uh, the main part of the job was to be the deck end, scrub the decks and polish the stainless and do all the mind-numbing jobs that you have to do. But again, in exotic locations, getting paid, 
getting to go diving. And But like I said, the main reason I got the job was because the owner's son was really into diving and when they came on board, it was just my job to go and hold his hand and take him diving. And one of the most obscure things I've ever seen, he'd really, really loved diving. But I just remember this one night dive we went on and he had an, a waterproof case on his iPhone, waterproof head headphones, and was watching TV underwater. No. Yes. Where? Where was this dive? In the Caribbean. We're off a British Virgin somewhere. And so forget the wrecks or forget the fish or forget the luminescence. Oh. My television show is on. I had, a, I had a great time. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what was your sister doing on the super yachts? Uh, she was the same. She was working as a, a deckhand and a bosun and eventually a, a dive master. What's the bosun do? Uh, they're in charge of all the all the deckhands. They're like the oh right. So the guys that put out the anchors and swab the decks and tie yeah, the exactly. lines when you come into a dock, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just manage the deck team of like four or five people usually. What is a super yacht? How big were these vessels that you were on? Are they boats or ships? By the way, well, everyone in super yachting calls them boats, which. It's going into the commercial world. I get a smack bottom every time I get it. Every time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, matter, it matters in the professional world. It's calling a ship a boat is quite an insult. You want to watch out for that. Yeah. What sort of size were these ships, boats? Oh, yeah. I think it officially becomes a super yacht at 50 meters, I think. 150-ish feet? Yeah, 160 feet. And then I think the largest one I worked on was 80 meters. Wow. 60 feet. Yeah. You always see the pictures of the very lush accommodations in the salon and the dining room and the owner's suite. What what was your life like living aboard a boat like that? Actually, the crew cabins are really, really good. They're not as good, but they're definitely a higher standard than I would class as the a normal working class house, mm. just a lot smaller. Mm. Yeah, okay. Cabins hot seating for dinner and no real place to sort of hang out. I saw a separate little galley dining area for the crew, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I mean, all the, I was very, very lucky. All the boats I worked on were out in very, very remote places. The owners are all very philanthropic. So they'd let scientists come on board and uh, use the, the super yachts as a research platform. Oh, nice. Just diving or. You know, some of them had a little ROV or a little unmanned submarine that you could drive around tethered to the ship, yeah. right? Yeah, an underwater drone essentially with on, on a little on a little tether, yeah, camera so you can go and record down what's what's really deep. Wow, is that where you first encountered submersibles that people can go in to see the depths without getting wet? Yeah, exactly on on super yachts. So I, I worked on this one boat and it was essentially a trailer. It just, it was a 70 meter <laughs> ship that just carried all the toys. <laughs> it was, in the United States, you see all these motorhomes towing ATVs and motorbikes and small cars. And essentially this was just a billionaire version of one of those. We had six tenders. And when I say tenders, I mean, there were like 30 to 60 foot boats on the back, had a submarine, a helicopter, six jet skis, an aeroplane, an airplane. Yeah, one of them had a little fold-up airplane. I mean, that had to be a vertical takeoff airplane. There's not enough deck space for a runway. A water plane. 
Oh, water plane. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was ludicrous. <laughs> How deep could the submersibles on a that a boat like that would carry? How deep could they go? They were going to a thousand meters, which I always explain to people when I'm talking about the depths we go to. A thousand meters just sounds like such an easy number to roll off the tongue, but I spent a lot of time and a lot of money. I probably spent 10 years and tens of thousands of dollars trying to get skilled up and certified to dive on a on what's called a rebreather, a technical diving set, to 100 meters. And I hopped on one of these super yachts and one afternoon we put the sub in and there was a spare seat. I got to jump in and went to 400 meters like it was nothing. Yeah. One afternoon listening to some Bob Dylan. <laughs> back for dinner like it was absolutely nothing and I just remember thinking to myself what was I doing Not <laughs> so nice and dry yeah driving could, 100 meters and just like that in one afternoon 400 meters without breaking a sweat yeah read a magazine and watch a movie if you'd like yeah exactly did that set the bug in you for getting to learn how these things are built and how they work or were you sort of cynical about it at that point no, I wasn't cynical at all. That's what kept me in the game working on super yachts was following these boats around. Every time I heard of a job on a, on a different boat with, a, with, an, with a, uh, some sort of underwater vehicle, whether it be for research or just for pleasure, for some rich person who liked to go diving without getting their hair wet, <laughs> put my name in the hat. And yeah, I was lucky enough that I, I worked on a couple of good boats and made it. That's where my networking really started. and made enough connections to to eventually get a job with Triton Submarines. Was it more about building your experience and staying close to the water than about paying for college? Yeah, it was. It was never about making money to, to pay for university. One, it was a hell of a lot of fun. I got to circumnavigate the globe pretty much and dive some of the most remote regions of the, the Pacific and the Atlantic. But on top of that, the main reason was to try and get involved with some sort of underwater vehicle, whether it be a remotely operated one from the surface, autonomous underwater vehicle, a man sub, which I didn't even know was a thing. I thought that was just something out of the movies from the 60s and 70s. <laughs> Here we are on a super yacht with a brand new $4 million man submersible. And as a rule, they are yellow submarines, right? Are, a lot of them are yellow. <laughs> Very good reason. I did always love that. Had you enrolled at the Maritime College already aiming at offshore engineering as your degree, or did that sort of sharpen your focus as you had these experiences? Yeah, it shaped. I actually started in an ocean engineering degree, and then these experiences working away, I, I quickly figured out that I wanted to, to learn about the systems and build hardware, whether it be building ships or building underwater vehicles. And at that point in time, when I first started working on, on the super yachts, there was this stigmatism that underwater vehicles and, and ROVs, even in the oil and gas industry, even the construction and marine industry was really hard to obtain. And working on super yachts and meeting the people that operated these vehicles and getting to know the network and, and the little world that exists it definitely helped break down those barriers and, and help down those perceptions that uh, there was this, it was in another world that these, these vehicles existed, that they actually, it was very attainable. So 
What's the difference between an ocean engineering degree and an offshore engineering degree? I would probably say absolutely nothing. <laughs> At the end of the day, Not as good a question as I thought, eh? <laughs> oh, I think it's a very good question in the fact that I think if you do engineering and you want to, you'll have a rough idea whether you want to be a mechanical engineer or a structural engineer. I think the point of that comment was that it doesn't really matter. Engineering is about a way of thinking. It's about problem solving and, and fault finding, whether it be through research or hands-on fixing a submarine or a mathematical problem building a bridge. I think engineering teaches you a thought process rather than a skill set. Once you go into the workforce, it's really your first job or the first five years of your working life that will really define where you'll end up. I'm not an engineer by training, but I've been around a lot of them, obviously. And it has seemed to me that even if you think about, let's say, between mechanical, electrical, structural, uh, if you get out in the field in practical jobs, like out on the pressure drop vessel or around airplanes, everybody, all the engineers there actually have some bit of a fusion of mechanical, you know, what's the, what, how do gears and pulleys and the hinges and things work, structural, how strong, where the loads going electrical, where the, all the electronics go. Everyone's got a bit of a Venn diagram there, best in the one maybe they concentrated in academically. But along the way in a job, it seems you sort of pick up at least some savviness about yeah. how those other dimensions are going to work. Would you agree with that? Totally agree. Yeah, I think most and a lot of engineers and a lot of the good ones are a jack of all trade, but a master of none. Like I said, it's more a thought process rather than a, a specific show. Everyone specializes, like I specialized in subsea and specifically deep sea, but everything that we learn and we apply on a submersible is the same for a car or a piece of mining equipment or a streetlight. I think that they're all, all very similar. And I think and for me, going and working on ships was a lot about trying to learn how to apply the knowledge. So like you say, you have to understand what happens on the other side to know what you're doing here. So you have to understand what decisions you're making for the electrical design is going to affect the mechanical design or, or even in the field. I think for me, that was the main point was to understand what happens in the field, what, un what happens when the guy's out there on the back deck and he's, and he's trying to undo a bolt that you've put in the most awkward right. place, can't get any tools, and you're out, they're out there with an angle grinder cutting up spanners and welding bits <laughs> on and get into these awkward spaces. And I will humbly admit that I have put myself in those situations. I've been so, so thrilled with myself to design some little piece of a submarine and have it installed. And then a year later, find myself working on it and cursing myself for <laughs> not leaving room for a spanner or... Yeah. What was that idiot thinking who did this? Yeah. <laughs> I realized that idiot was you. <laughs> so, I mean, I would call your bouncing around on and off of ships, you know, it's a self-created version of a co-op program, right? I mean, you learn, you stay at school, you learn some bits with the, the academics and the equipment they've got there at a university and then you go out in the real world and you see you get bits of 
time to apply it, but you also see many other dimensions. And you go, you know, going back and forth gives you kind of a really fabulous interplay between those two modes of learning. Yeah, it was amazing to be able to come back to university and to apply what you've seen in the field and vice versa. Was everybody at the Maritime College getting some amount of out in the field experience like you? Or you know, when you came back, you would have been a kind of wise man coming back with well, yeah, that's nice, but here's how it works in the real world kind of experiences to share with your classmates. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of that coming back to university and realizing, okay, I had to put myself back in the shoes that, you know, a lot of these the people that I was going back into a classroom with had gone straight from school to a university classroom and never even had a, a full-time job. Uh, I don't know about the United States. It's very common in Australia to have a year off between high school and university. Going into university, you could really see the difference between the students who had that worldly experience and, and the students who didn't. Yeah, the famous gap year. Yeah, our university, they were so flexible. I mean, they were uh, setting up a co-op program, the students, as I was sort of doing it by myself, and they were very supportive. One of the lecturers, the mass lecturer, Irene, going to have a meeting with her, she was always so invested in all, in all the students and I went and had a meeting with her to discuss this option about going working at sea for what I thought was only going to be a year at that point in time and it turned out to be four <laughs> but I just remember her saying well Tim you know you'll always have to come back and finish and it just that was it that was the one comment and she left it at that and it was just I don't know it's something always stuck with me that everyone else had all these weighing up of options and pros and cons and she was just so matter of fact. She's like, well, you have to finish at some point. So yeah. go and do it. Yeah. Get some get some experience, make some money, go see the world, and, and you'll come back and finish. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be here when you come back. Not to worry. You're too in debt, You're too in debt now to not see this through. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep your seat warm. <laughs> That's wonderful. So there you are doing all of that. And somewhere along the way, you tell me again how it evolves. You ended up in quite a pivotal role, right in the middle of a very unique project that started in about 2015 to design a submersible like none that existed at the time that could not only go to the deepest point in the world's ocean, Challenger Deep, but could go to any depth, any of the super deep parts of the ocean whenever it wanted to multiple times. How did that come about? A lot of it's to do with timing. I was never a believer that timing was a factor in, in any of my decisions, but I would happily say that being at the right place in the right time and making the most of the opportunities that were presented helped me along the way. And when I left university and went to work on the ships, one, one of the boats I worked on, we had the guys come out from Triton to do some training and I just kept in contact with them and Whenever I was in Florida on a super yacht or flying through, I'd, I'd stop in and see them and just, you know, every six months, I pop my face in the shop and say, hey, I, I still exist. <laughs> Another six months, come back, hey, I'm, I still exist. <laughs> yeah. Triton's a fairly small company, right? In Is it Vero Beach, Florida? Yeah, they're, they're actually in Sebastian now, but they were in Vero Beach at that point in time. I think when I started there, there was probably about 25 or 30 employees. There might be a bit more now. They've got another big office in, in Barcelona in Spain where wow. they design and do a lot of testing. And I actually went to work on pressure drop as a second officer. So all my extracurricular activities working on ships ended me up on, 
on pressure drop, and that only lasted about two weeks before they they mothballed the the crew um, because they're extending the shipyard period for another year. And uh, one of the guys from Triton, Jim Harris, just I remember calling him and said, "Oh man, it hasn't worked out. I'm, I'm, I'm they're flying me back to Cape Town tomorrow." And he said, "No, you're not." He said, I "Do not get on that flight. You're coming to Florida." And I was like, "Oh, I was like, I can't. Like, I don't have enough money to buy a plane ticket back to to Cape Town because I hadn't been working." And he's like, "Do not get on that flight. Come to Florida." So I flew to Florida, and two days later, I was in the design office and had me working as an engineer under their their principal design engineer, and uh, they said to me, "Tim, you know about boats. You've been working on boats. How are we going to get this?" 12-ton submarine on, off and on this ship. So I spent a week and made a, a concept design of the launch and recovery system. And went, oh, that's perfect. We'll just do that. And I went, <laughs> it's like, that's just a pretty picture. Like, we can't just yeah, do it. sketch, guys. It needs a little more yeah. work. <laughs> it's, the, it's a 3D version of a sketch. <laughs> so they just let me have at it. And I spent the next two years pretty much doing the integration for this one of a kind, full ocean depth, eleven thousand meter rated, two man submersible. Which yeah, and just to pick up a little detail, pressure drop is the name of the surface ship, the mothership that carries this really little tiny. It's heavy, but it's a little tiny submersible. Carries it around the ocean because submersibles are, are good at going vertical up and down, but they can't move very far laterally. So if you want to dive in the Pacific and then dive in the Caribbean, you need a mothership that can carry from place to place. Yeah. So there was, it was definitely right place, right time. And I had to pinch myself every day after chasing these ships around the world with submarines on the back of it for five or six years, trying to get in, get into it the sub business and be a technician or be a pilot or just help out. And then here, here, here I am for the company that's building this world first deepest ever diving submersible was, it's like going from zero to infinity. (laughs) Yeah. So you had your sights set even then on somehow making a path forward to become a pilot to actually be the guy that that's in charge of the submersible and guides it up and down and maneuvers along the bottom. Yeah, I think to be honest with you, anyone who sees a submersible, whoever takes a ride in a submersible thinks, I want to do that job. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never ever met, you know, a five-year-old that says, I want to grow up and be a submersible engineer, which is what has made me so fascinated by the pathway and the lessons and the motivations yeah. that take you to such a point. Honestly, I think it's the real thing is just perseverance. It sounds very glamorous and the road to being a submersible pilot or I think to follow any passion, to be honest with you. Once, once you get there and people dress you down and trying to understand how you got there, oh, wow, you're so lucky to have that job, but there's so many gaps that you've got to fill in between people telling you, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You should be thinking about buying a house and how are you ever going to have a stable relationship when you're off on a ship all the time and what are you doing about university degree when are you going to come home, miss this wedding and this birthday and that Christmas and all these major events? So I think that uh, just committing, and I think that the only way you can really do that is just find something that you actually enjoy to do, something you really, really love. 
think I was very, very fortunate that I found something that I really enjoyed and was able to make a career out of it very early on to get to a position where I've dove the deepest diving submersible to the bottom of the ocean at 30 years old is crazy. There's got to be a bit of luck in there. Yeah. To find this pathway so early on. So all of those things you just ran through, you know, come home, come to the wedding, buy a house, settle down, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of noise bubbles around, bubbles around us all the time from what I call the spectator gallery, right? I mean, sometimes people who really care about you, your family or close friends, but often it's just sort of the spectator gallery, making sure you've heard their opinion about what you ought to be doing instead of what you are doing. Were there ever any moments that that really kind of got to you and you had to you know, really stop and kind of rethink and question yourself, examine what you were doing and you know, reconfirm? Or was it so clear or you were so assured of it that it was all water rolling off the duck's back? I mean, this morning, I thought about <laughs> yesterday morning, most, <laughs> a lot of days. But I don't think there's many people in the world that don't think that question whether they're making the right choices. Honestly, I've just had so much fun along the way that it's just been, a, it really has been a natural progression just from one great little stepping stone to another great stepping stone. And there's definitely some jobs in between where it's like, okay, well, I know I need to do this for a couple of years to get either the skills or the piece of paper or whatever I need. So I was like, cool, I can settle into this for a couple of years and then just enjoy it. And then, you, you know, you, you get that to that moment or the, you know, you get the engineering degree or you get your sub pilot's license and you have a moment of crisis and it all seems like it's unraveling for a couple of months until you find <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Yeah, it does seem to do that. Yeah, I can imagine like after, definitely after diving Challenger Deep and it would be interesting to hear your perspective on it that, you know, you hear about astronauts once they go to space and they come home and they get a bit, Depressed as they spent so much time and effort, and you you do it, and you get back, and you're like, okay, there's nowhere else to go. I can't go any higher. I did have that same sort of experience after Challenger Deep. I got back. I was like, okay, unless I get a shovel, <laughs> <laughs> not going any deeper than that. <laughs> it's like, okay, what do I? What I need to find another challenge now. And yeah, it definitely took me a while to figure out what that was. So. I think that's right. I suspect it's true of any, you know, any experience that requires an all of you investment. I mean, I would imagine finally making that last step to be a top Everest or climbing up on a metal platform or the Olympics or yes, a space flight or a notable submersible dive. I've always felt this a bit like I've been in this highly concentrated tunnel, you know, making my way forward, all absorbed in what it takes to grow, get the skills and do the thing I'm aiming at. And, you know, poof, then it's done. And it's like you're in this moment of free fall for a little bit and all sorts of what's next questions. And for me, they were never about, you know, what's better or higher or how do you beat that? Because I've never been trying to beat something or I've never been trying to make marks for anybody else with what I've done in my career. So it was more 
there may not be something as headline worthy coming up next, but there are lots of interesting things. And so just pursuing the curiosity would keep me on something that I found interesting. And none of you might write any headlines about it, but I didn't care about the headlines you wrote about the other one. Yeah, I think that I think that I'm in a the Hadal zone, which is the part of the ocean that exists from 6,000 meters all the way to the bottom at nearly 11,000 meters, is that next adventure. It's just there is lifetimes upon lifetimes. You know, if we had 20 of the LF, which is the submersible, the deep submergence vehicle, 20 of those and 20 ships to carry it and 20 lifetimes, we still would have a lot to explore. What do you say to people who say, you know, 6,000 meters, 20,000 feet? I mean, it's a tiny, you know, it's a tiny percentage of the ocean that's down at those depths and it's all far, far away from anything. Why should we care? Why, why does it matter if we ever know anything about it? I think that that is pretty much the major moral dilemma for any science. And I think that there's a very good argument to say that we don't need to know it. And you think about it, if we, if we actually took some real action and stopped driving our cars and stopped flying planes and stopped buying plastic and, and had a minimalistic lifestyle, if every single person on earth did that tomorrow, it would probably have a greater effect. But I think that as human nature, we want to keep progressing and we want to still keep our way of, of life and keep our social events and keep everything else that is so lovely about the world we live in. We have to understand the impact that we're having on the world. And the only way that we can understand the impact we're having is by understanding all the different ecosystems around the world, above in the mountains, at the bottom of the ocean, along the coastline, in our backyards. And, you know, there's the old fable, if you don't know it's there, then how can you protect it? But these these areas, and it's not just 6,000 metres below, but these massive abyssal plains, which are, you know, five and a half or six and a half thousand metres, make up the greatest portion of the surface of the world. And they have huge implications, the amount of biomass, the amount of oxygen, the amount of temperature control with the currents. All of which drives our climate. Exactly. If we don't understand all of these processes, um, it could have huge implications on us here on the surface. And I, and I, and I struggle to explain those a little bit because I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm literally just the bus driver. Yes. <laughs> down there. But that, that for me is, is really what, what I want to be driving and striving for. I really enjoy the science. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily, I'm not a professional at it yet, but for me it's the technical aspect. What can we do and what can we develop and how, what processes can we develop and what technology and equipment can we further and develop to allow the scientists to understand it better so that we can get them to these places. We can collect good data for them bring quality samples back so that they can process it and analyze it and, and understand it and then come and tell me what we need to do. Yeah, yeah. Take it to the world. So you spent a number of years uh, helping get the limiting factor submersible ready to live on her mothership, the pressure drop, and the, set up the gear that you could drop it and lift it up, put it in the water, bring it back out, and and then, you know, helping 
between every single dive, check everything was still okay or fix things that had gone wrong. And, and then in 2019-ish, 20-ish, you, you started out really on the path to get certified as the pilot. And I'm really fascinated to know, to hear you tell me what your, what was your very first dive in the left seat? And maybe you had dived before it gone along as a passenger on a pretty deep dive, but that first time you're in the left seat and going down really deep, and then maybe the Challenger deep dive specifically, was anything about the context and perspective of that going through your head at the moment, or were you just all absorbed in the submersible and that kind of filled in when you were back, safely back on deck? At that point in time, yeah, definitely the latter of the two. It, it only really hit afterwards. My first official dive as a, as a pilot after certification after my certification dive was to 10,000 meters with Alan Jameson in the Philippine Trench. So just like 30,000 feet. Yeah. You're yeah, like a hero, literally. And there was a lot of there was a lot going on. There was quite a few changes with the, in the sub team. And there's a lot of obviously a lot of external pressures and schedules and things breaking and personnel availability issues and you get so caught up, you live in this little tiny bubble with 30 or 40 or 50 people and everyone's so busy working day and night, spending months and trying to get parts and pieces and people flown from all over the world to meet deadlines and you're down to the last minute, you're, you're fixing something or you're going through all your checks and you hop in the sub and you close that hatch and there's just something happens is you just realize there's just this wave that comes over you and you realize, oh, I just get to do this now for 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, all that drops away, right? Everything else goes away. All the people, all the politics, all, all the stresses. Is this going to work? Is it not going to work? Is that broken? Is it not broken? You're just left with what you have now. And you really just get to thoroughly enjoy every second of it and i think that's always been the case for me diving you know i'm always keeping myself really busy and taking on too much but i've always felt as soon as i get in the water that you know the world could end and you would never know and you wouldn't really care <laughs> you're in that environment and that space and there's nothing that can affect it you are your own world what were you anxious at all on that first dive Deep, deep dive. No, I think if you've ever met Alan Jameson. Scottish scientist now at the University of Perth, right? I should say Professor. University of West Australia, excuse me. Professor Alan Jameson, excuse me. Yes, pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> He's now yeah, the head of the uh, University of Western Australia Minbury Deep Sea Research Centre. Uh, I've got a very dry sense of humour and him and I get along really well. And, you know, we just hopped in the sub and put some tunes on and, sank to the bottom of the ocean had he done a deep deep dive before he had yeah he'd done a couple yeah. in the marianas trench one in serena deep he might have done two in serena deep which is in each of these trenches you have what's called deeps which are the region within that trench which are obviously the deepest part has been called a deep and you have challenge deep which is very famous it's obviously it's the deepest part of the world's oceans but just right next to that, at only about 300 metres shallower, is another one called Serena Deep. These are like little extra deep pockets in these big, long gashes of the 
ocean trenches. Yeah, yeah, correct, yeah. Yeah. Normally, they are broken up where a seamount is crashing into the other plate. So these trenches are made where you have two tectonic plates clashing together um, and one gets forced underneath the other. So it bends down and it creates these long, deep trenches at the edge of the plate. And as the plate that gets pushed under and it is getting subducted, so it's getting pushed down under and going to the, into the mantle of the earth, it has these seamounts on them, which are almost look like a little pimple. And as that little pimple gets to the underwriting plate, it, it jams up and these large seamounts are what break up often each one of these deeps. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what's the most enchanting or mesmerizing or intriguing thing you've seen on your dives as a pilot so far? And the obvious related question is, what signs, of, if any, of the hand of man have you seen in these deep, deep places? Um, I'll answer the first question. And I think that the most mesmerizing and peculiar place was off the west coast, uh, northwest shelf of Australia in the Wallaby Zenith fracture zone. We did a dive on a polymetallic nodule field or a manganese nodule field, and these nodules are they form in the in the sediment um, and they create these almost perfect round black balls and then the sediment washes away and you're left with this layer of these perfectly round black balls about the size of a, a baseball spread across the ocean floor wow first dive we did we landed on this on this area and all these nodules were so tightly packed it looked like a cobblestone street of Rome. It looked like it couldn't be possible that they hadn't been laid by the hand. Wow. As far as you could see was this perfect bed, perfectly spherical objects, and they were black, black, like black as coal. And then the sediment was really white, which is not, which is not normal. It's often, you know, like a, a beige or a brown. And this field just went on and on and on forever for so long that your eyes started getting tired trying to understand between the black and the black balls and the white sediment that it would invert. And all of a sudden, these spheres and nodules would become cups. Yeah. Wow. And staring at these for four hours was just. The whole time you were, that you maneuvered, was they were still there? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We did, we moved up the slope and they slowly, we did these big jumps. We'd go up vertically, we'd ascend vertically about 100 metres and then transit across till we intersected the wall and it gradually got sparser and sparser. But that first part was just totally bizarre. And I mean, normally at that depth, six and a half thousand metres, you're still seeing, you know, you'll see amphipods and shrimp and, and pelagic sea cucumbers and the odd fish, but that was there was we saw one sea spider and that was it wow uh, and one little tiny anemone perched right on top <laughs> hooray <laughs> i found a landing spot yeah <laughs> yeah it was bizarre and signs of man have you seen any of those on your dives every dive unfortunately really what kinds of things plastic bottles plastic bags you know, 30,000 feet below sea level, hundreds of miles from land? Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, we're uh, 
the Wallaby Zenith Fracture Zone is 1,000 miles off the coast of Australia, 1,000 miles from probably more, 2,000 miles from Indonesia. And now plastic bottles, plastic bags, fishing line, scientific equipment. Wow. Uh, Wow. Pretty sad. Yeah. So we're coming towards the end of our time, and I there's several different themes I kind of use to wind up these great conversations. I've been on a fence all day long about which one to, to throw at you between some you know lightning round of deliberately sort of silly questions and something a little a little more serious. And I guess I'll go with this serious one a bit, and that is what words of advice on two fronts would you have for Listeners, one picking up on this point we've just made about understanding the ocean and the importance of ocean and, and our role and our impact on it. And the other number of my listeners are youngish people your age and a bit younger. And I hear lots of them come back to me with thanks for the kinds of insights about ways to think about their path or you know ways to look at the bumps in their road that they've gotten from hearing how other people made their way through life. So Final thoughts on those two points for the crowd out there? Yeah, I'll touch on the on the, first, on the second one first. I think that if you can, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but if you can find something that, and I'm not going to say that that is fun. Fun is a little bit superficial, but if you can find something that really moves you, you have to enjoy it for sure. You have to have fun at some point. And I, and I don't use the word Find something you like and do that and you'll be successful because there's going to be a lot of what inspires you that you're not going to like. There's going to be a lot of jobs you want to do that you're not going to like. There's going to be a lot of emotions that get brought up that are uncomfortable, you don't like, and you just have to persevere and and know that you will find it'll come to you. The way will come to you. It's not going to appear overnight and you're not going to see where you're going to be in 10 years into the future, but as every step goes along where you want to be in the end, your vision is going to change. So as we say in the sub world, say flexible, not limp. (laughs) That's brilliant. But I think I hear you say, and I love that, there's something about a sense of worth in what you're aiming at that will help you get through those muddy, turbulent uncomfortable, unfun bits and that you're doing things that are taking you that you know are kind of going where you ultimately want to be. There's a kind of joy in that. It's different. It is different than just fun. It is very different than just fun. It's got to be fulfilling. Yeah. And you've got to enjoy it and don't be afraid to congratulate yourself when you, when you do have those successes and you can look back at all the people who said they didn't understand what you're doing and question what you're doing and go, see, oh, so <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to have those those moments where you can kind of almost rub it in their face a little bit, obviously <laughs> quietly, but uh, great. And thoughts about our ocean and uh, our relationship to it to close. I think that the the best way to go out and, and try and understand the ocean is to go and be in it, go explore, go walk on the coastline, go dive into the sea, go scuba diving, look at it from an aeroplane when you're flying over. And each one of those actions will invoke a thought which will make you go and read a book or read a, a scientific paper or read an article. But 
first and foremost, just go and experience it and the rest will come. I love it. Well, Tim, I look forward to following more of your adventures and wanderings and deep, deep dives. And uh, I know we can find some videos and images of things you've done on Kowladan Oceanic site. And we will uh, we'll track you. We'll put some links to following you in the show notes so people can follow your adventure as well. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you very much, Kathy. Lovely to see you again. And thank you for everyone for listening. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.